0: The SU Elections 2022 with The Scoop at Queen's Radio.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Thomas Copeland and every day this week, The Scoop is bringing you interviews with the candidates running in this year's SU Elections.
0: Education.
1: Well, today we're looking at the post of education and with me now in the call is Beth Elder. Beth is a final year student in pharmaceutical studies. She's the current School of Pharmacy rep and this year relaunched the Pharmaceutical Society here at Queen's. Beth, thanks very much for being with me.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank you very
1: much. Well, here's what we're going to do. We'll take a dive into some of those big issues that are relevant to this role. Hear what your policies are. Pick up on some of the manifesto points as well. Probably won't be able to fit absolutely everything in, but we'll leave a bit of time at the end for you to address anything you really care about that we haven't been able to get to. So if that works for you, why don't we start off by talking about blended learning? This is the very first point on your manifesto. Sort of 30 seconds or so, what's your approach to blended learning? How do you want to make it different that it has been for students over the last year, year and a half, and how are you going to make that happen?
0: Um, that's a very good question. I think this is one of the things that I focused on a lot this year in my role as School of Pharmacy Rep. So it's for me, it's about recognizing that every student has had a completely different experience and will continue to have a different experience. So it's it's looking specifically at different schools and what works for them. So you've got things like the School of Natural Building um, Sciences, and then you've got the School of Pharmacy and like the School of Law and things. And the way that those different courses are built up is, is completely different. So the likes of geography is very practical with field trips and um, things like that, whereas pharmacy can be incredibly act- like lecture tutorials and um, seminar based uh, with some practical stuff. And then you've got the likes of law, which is very heavy on the academic side of things. So I think my whole approach is creating can, the, the idea that you can't standardize the blended learning approach across all of the schools. And it's about looking at each of specific schools, looking at the the different module makeups and the different, you know, practical versus um, academic based things and creating them personal approach to the blended learning model for those skills.
1: Okay. I, I suppose one of the questions that comes with that is that, I mean, have you got uh, policies that that, that that are common to every single different course? It's very difficult, I suppose, to go into details to each and every different course, how that should be made up. For example, uh, do you think that all lectures should be available online for students? That's a common policy that you might have across yeah. the entirety of the university. Is that where you stand?
0: absolutely yeah i think one of the overarching themes that's seen throughout my manifesto is that accessibility of your education is 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 vital it's a massive priority i think there is a need for in-person, on-campus engagement with lectures, with, with different models that you can use, but creating lecture recordings to be placed online is a huge part of making education accessible, especially for people who, who are in groups that just can't attend, you know, disabled people, people with extreme anxiety, you know, all those different groups of people who, for, for health reasons or for personal reasons, aren't able to attend that day, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think it's technologically feasible to ask for every lecture and tutorial to be recorded across the entirety of the university. I suppose that's particularly difficult in a tutorial on small group setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much more difficult to record those kind of contributions coming from every student rather than a lecture perhaps, where it is slightly easier to record that and provide it uh, online for students. I mean, what would you say to staff who would say, who would often say, we're very overworked a- enough as it is. Is it fair to place an additional obligation on them that every single tutorial and lecture has to be recorded?
0: Yeah, I, I definitely recognize that there is a line to draw under specific places I think that lecture recording in itself is a basic a basic thing it should be across the board 100% when you go into things like tutorials and seminar groups I recognize that those are more based on the engagement with the groups that are are there and it's much harder to record those things and that's when you would look at other options like hosting those online on a case-to-case basis so certain students in that group unable to attend because of different reasons well that's when you would think about hosting it online and that's when you could make it recorded because students then would all be on online and it would be a lot easier
1: to do that. I suppose some cynical students, Beth, might say to you, university is meant to be in person. We're here to attend classes on person. Is it fair, for example, in a tutorial group, if one member of a group of 40, 50, 100 people wants to do it online, that the entire of the tutorial is moved onto an online basis rather than entirely in person? Is it not the case that university is meant to be an in-person activity? If you want to be online, go to the Open University. What would you say to students who might put that question to you?
0: I understand that. I definitely do. And I think that um, university being in person is what we all signed up for. It's the experience that we're paying for. And it's what most students want. And I'm 100 percent on board with the return to campus and everything like that. Um, I think on a case to case basis, it wouldn't just be one student asking for it to be online and that to be moved online. It would have to be the majority. And I don't think that would ever be the case anyway. So I don't think that it's ever going to be an issue, you know.
1: Okay. Um... Let me talk to you about another issue that often comes up, particularly for lecture recordings. One of the reasons that in the past, uh, lecture recordings have been a more difficult thing to enact than some might have suspected is that quite often staff feel as if they don't want to provide lecture recordings because it would allow the university to undermine potential strike action. The university is currently undergoing strike action. Some some staff might say we shouldn't be providing lecture recordings because it means the university can distribute those to students when actually industrial action is going on, and the whole point is meant to be to taking that away, removing the product of your labour. What would you say to staff who would say I don't want to record lectures potentially uh, because it undermines our own strike action?
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely something that um, is very important. It's not something I thought about in a lot of depth, but it's very interesting. I think. Um, the strikes obviously are, I completely support them. They're a massive part of the university and a lot of students are getting behind it. I think um, in terms of that, it would be, there would, There needs to be some sort of policy in place where staff can be assured that, you know, their lectures are recorded and released at certain times and they can't be released during strike period because that is their right, you know what I mean? And I completely support the lecturers on that, on that front, definitely.
1: I suppose, Beth, some people might say, you know, that's been the really big reason over the last number of years why lectures haven't been able to be recorded. Um, some people might say, should you not be coming to this role with a policy in place to deal with that really big challenge, which is a fundamental reason why it hasn't happened up till now?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. It's something that, Again, if I if I do get elected, it's going to be a priority because blended learning is probably one of the biggest points on my manifesto. I think it's the, the one that is the most topical right now. It's the most impactful right now, especially as we're coming to the end of the pandemic. And the whole aspect of recorded learning is so topical, especially on social media. And everybody you talk to asks, well, what is your stance on recorded, recorded lectures and, and online learning and stuff? And it's definitely something that is going to be probably within the first few months if I do get elected is going to be a massive working point for me in bringing forward policies for that.
1: Okay if we look at your manifesto for blended learning two of the bullet points that you have there are actually tied to student voice which is a topic I want to talk about in just a second but specifically on blended learning I mean what would you say to a student who says I want to see more concrete policies about what you're going to do rather than overarching stuff about making it accessible and flexibility?
0: Yeah um I think student voice is a massive part of blended learning because the only way that we're going to get forward students' opinions on the blended learning model, and I think the most secure way to do that and the most... um, sort of developed way to do that is through student voice which is why I've included those points under under that um, section in the manifesto I think in terms of policy for it it is very much so I want town hall style meetings um within the schools which we've done already in pharmacy we've had like um all of all of a year group together in a call with des with our you know with different lecturers and things where we've had conversations about like this is how we feel we feel isolated this is not what we signed up for this is what we'd like and from that came sort of like an action plan. And then now we're into the stage where we're implementing those actions. So it's about those town hall town hall style meetings, which I think are the very basis of it is getting that conversation going, getting the personal details of what each school needs and what they think um, could be most impactful for them to change for blended learning. And starting from there and moving forward from that, I think is, is the basis of, of what I'd like to do.
1: Okay, let me ask you just one final question on blended learning that I suppose covers the topic as a whole. The big fundamental issue, I suppose, Beth, is that you've got, students who want different things how do you think you'll be able to manage those competing demands between students some of whom say no I want all online other people say no I want all in person is it not the case that it's actually impossible to meet all of those demands and you're going to have to come down on one side or the other Absolutely,
0: yeah It's something that we're seeing time and time again in every school. You know, every student has a completely different experience, and not not every student's ever going to get exactly what they want. But I think it's about finding that compromise, that happy medium, where you know you do have that engagement in person, you do have the online accessibility as well, Um, and it's finding that balance between the student body. And the only way that's going to happen is to have personal conversations with that student body. To see what the majority wants and how we can find a compromise for those people. So, I think it's about ensuring students that even if you don't agree with return to campus, we will accommodate that as well. You know, we're not just going to go with the majority and leave it there. There's always going to be compromise, and that's a massive part to education, I believe.
1: Okay, let's talk about student voice then, because this is an issue where you dedicate a little bit of time to in your manifesto. Talk to me about this, two, uh, this mandatory two week action report for yeah. school and course reps. What does that mean?
0: Essentially, I've been in the student voice for the past three years at Queen's and a lot of the time, a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, we've brought those issues forward, but what's actually happened with them, you know? after every meeting your course reps tend to relay you know this is what I brought up in the meeting as has been told to me from you guys um and this is what they're going to do about it but a lot of the time we don't actually see the action happening and I think again another massive theme to my manifesto is bringing forward action when a lot of the time it's not being brought forward so the two-week action report in my mind is something that allows um everybody in student voice, which en- encompasses the students as well that period of two weeks to Take take forward the actions that they've talked about in the meeting, carry them out, and then it collaborates together, puts it in a in a very very clear, very accessible document. This is what you said. This is what we did. You know what I mean? And that then holds people accountable for what's being said in those meetings, and then makes action actually happen at the end of it.
1: And, and sorry, just to clarify, so this is this would be a physical report that would be published somewhere online, and every single yeah. student and course rep would be obliged to to, to publish a document once every two weeks
0: the way it is it's a collaboration between everybody within the student voice so it would almost be like um the way minutes work where it's it's all it's a detail of what happened within the meeting it, it's similar to that where it's a document that will be accessible to the entire student body to which it affects but it's collaborative between the staff and the students where everybody Takes their action point from their meeting, should they have one. Tells writes what they've done about that and carries out that action. And it, it's stated there on that document in black and white what they've done and what's happened. And that document would then be released to all of the students.
1: Okay, M- many schools and courses, I suppose, Beth, a struggled to get students to, to to sign up to be school and course reps. Certainly, I know in these uh, the leadership elections that are currently ongoing, there are a number of positions that were up until very recently or may continue to be on. Contested um, or unoccupied, nobody running for them at all, is increasing the amount of work that's required for school and course reps. The right way up to go about increasing more student engagement is that not going to just put students off.
0: I understand that, yeah, definitely, and it's not so much an increase of work um, uh, as a. Sort of, I think it makes it more enticing. And um, I'm taking the complete other opposite side of what you're saying. I understand it, but I think a lot of people don't go towards student voice because they think, well, it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't enact any change. It's just a status. It's just get to get grade plus. It's just for this and for that. But I'm of the opinion if you change the policy and the way things work within student voice, and people start to see, oh, this person has created change and this person has created action, although it might be another extra ten minutes of work to write down what you actually did, um. I don't believe it is a lot of extra work. And I believe from seeing action happening from student voice, it's going to improve improve, um, engagement and improve people running for those positions.
1: I wonder, Bethany, do you think you've actually put your finger on the fundamental point there, which is that for many students, the bigger problem is that when they do bring issues to their course and school rep, those course and school reps don't have any power to fix that. Isn't that a far bigger issue than reporting back or students being aware of what their course and school rep has done if ultimately it comes to nothing?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um they're both big issues, I think. Um and report doing something about the issues. The issue behind that, I believe, is honestly just accountability. So a lot of people are saying, right, so that's your issue, you've brought it forward and you haven't done anything about it. It's about creating accountability within the student voice. So I think that the two-week action report sort of encompasses both of those. It encompasses And is that
1: sorry, sorry Beth, is that accountability? as in students can hold course reps accountable or is that accountability so the course reps and school reps could hold the faculty accountable?
0: I think it's across the board, um, honestly. A lot of people who haven't been in student rep meetings don't know how they work. It's often sometimes students have to do things as well and they have to create action themselves um, as well as staff. Um, so it's very much holding the staff predominantly accountable, but to some degree, it's also given the student body reassurance that the students representing them are also being accountable for, for the issues that are being brought forward.
1: I suppose it just it strikes me that do you think that actually much would change? Is there much of a big difference between students bringing a problem to their course rep and never hearing anything else about it and bringing a problem to the course rep and then hearing it written down in two weeks and still nothing happening about it? It's a fundamental problem, not that student voice reps potentially don't have enough power and you haven't addressed that specifically.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um... I think with the lack of power attains to a lot of things it could be you know the lack of mobilization within them so they don't they're not there a lot of the time student reps aren't receiving enough training and enough um, information on how to use their power better. I do think that student reps have power to a certain degree and obviously there is a lot of work that needs to be done within the student voice to increase the student power within you know creating change and things like that and that is something that has been ongoing for quite some time but i the thing that i think i'm saying is the two-week action report is not just a written thing it is this is you have to have done this to have this in this report and it's about you know you have to carry out this action and if you haven't done it you can't write it in there and it's proof that this has happened if that makes sense to you
1: okay you talked there about students reps not using the power that they do have how do you think that student reps could better use the power that they do have
0: um, I think a lot of that attains to um, training. I think that's a massive part of it. So,
1: training them to do what, though, I suppose, Beth?
0: um for myself this year I'm a school pharmacy rep so when I first started I didn't know very much about leadership um in terms of chairing meetings and things I wasn't uh, honestly too sure about how to begin a meeting um and how to moderate a meeting and things like that and that's a lot of training that I didn't receive so um that's a massive part of it as well I think increasing that sort of training um Visibility is another um way to give student reps power. I think um a lot of the issues of surrounding visibility is you know lack of engagement on social media as well. So not all the students are on social media. So it's about exploring another platform. And I'd actually I discussed this with a few people about releasing like a profile sort of thing on email um to the entire student um body. Say it's a, a level one students for geography while releasing a profile on those student reps to all of the students in that level one to say hi I'm your course rep this is how you contact me this is how you can um, bring your issues forward to me and that in turn increases their visibility on a different platform where people aren't engaged on social media so those are the two things is sort of increasing the training to know how to modulate those meetings and how to to push for the action and then increasing their visibility as well and I think those are two massive prompts for increasing student power
1: OK, and I uh, just talk, talk to me, do you think, uh, I just want to understand how, how does increasing visibility, do you think, translate to the student reps having more power? Is it not the case that it's a structural problem in place whereby, you know, a student rep brings a problem to a school and ultimately nothing can be done about it because, you know, there are long time frames or there are structural issues in place that prevent changes being made in the short term. It, it's, uh, talk to me how you think that uh, student reps have more power on the basis of increased visibility.
0: Um. From my experience um as a course rep for a couple of years as well a lot of the time students don't know who is representing them so they're not bringing things forward and so action is not being taken on issues because actually student reps don't know about the issues a lot of the time because they're not being talked to by their students so the visibility sort of moves forward on them receiving more information about where students are struggling and then in turn bringing that forward to the student voice meetings and I definitely do recognize that the student voice meetings and their their action thereafter is not best structured and it's definitely about creating conversations with students and staff about how that can be improved as well.
1: Okay one final point on student reps before we move on Beth um I well over the last three years in Queen's Radio I've been looking through a lot of manifestos for this role and for many other ones and this issue about creating more power for student reps has been a recurrent issue that comes in year after year after year. Why do you think that you're going to be able to the one to fix or to drastically improve the student voice system where so many other people who are very competent who have come before you haven't been able to do so?
0: Um, That's a very good question, actually. I think... <sighs> I feel like I'm unique because I am not scared to get controversial when it comes to things. I'm not scared to go against Queen's management when it comes to changing how things have always been. I think a lot of the time, Queen's can be quite archaic in their ways. They leave things set and how they always have been. So it's, it's definitely about um, breaking that barrier down. I think everyone who's come into this position has come from a different background, has come from different experience and has different connections. Um, and that's obviously another part of it. Everybody works in a different way. And I think the way that I work is very much so based on making action happen. Whereas in the past, I don't think that's been an overarching theme in a lot of candidates' um, manifestos and such.
1: What do you mean by that? I suppose, what is it that you bring that is particularly conducive to to, to action happening? Um, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think... Um, my sort of motto towards all of my manifesto points is taking a personal approach where it's creating conversations that are based on the students because ultimately I'm representing the students and I'm not here for my own agenda I'm here to push the students on their movement and what they want to see so I want to create those conversations with students and from that look at the information that they give me and create an action plan and then implement that action plan and I think a lot of the time conversations happen and then fizzle out and nothing ever happens so I think my main thing is that I am going to create action no matter what happens.
1: Okay. Well, let's move on and talk about educational isolation. So this is another issue that you've got a point, a section about in your manifesto. You talk in your manifesto about discussion boards. Talk to me about what that's all about. How is it going to work?
0: Okay. Um, I think a lot of the time when I've spoken to students, the main issue that comes up is, okay, obviously they're feeling really isolated with being online. And that's essentially a more of a welfare issue. Um, I think the academic side of that um, it pertains to being able to ask questions to lecturers and not getting quick responses. It's very isolating to, you know, sit through a recorded lecture, message your, your lecturer straight after saying, I don't understand this aspect. Could you please explain to me then to get a reply two, three days later when that sort of thing is not fresh in your mind? So I want to normalize those discussion boards online where it becomes more of like a, a platform for asking questions and receiving answers in a, in a much smaller time frame that creates less isolation that creates feelings of being listened to and having your questions answered and creates sort of an online community as we do return back to campus
1: okay let's let's talk about that specifically so would staff then be obliged to reply to messages within a certain time frame or how does that work
0: um still working on all the issues with it i think it's um something that staff to be willing make we can make them willing to do it is if we talk about it with them in a mm-hmm. in a very uh, personal way in those sort of townhouse town hall style meetings.
1: I suppose just one of the things that strikes me is that uh, today, as all of uh, the rest of this week and indeed last week as well, staff have been standing outside the Lanyon building. And one of the reasons that they're on strike, as they say, part of the four fights, is being overworked and too much work being placed upon them. Do you think it's fair to impose an obligation on staff to respond uh, within uh, to respond to uh, yet another platform? of engagement in the form of discussion boards when they already say they're severely overworked? Do you think that would be an effective thing to do or indeed a fair thing to do?
0: The idea, I think, behind it is a lot of students are emailing their lecturers with similar questions, with the same questions. And, you know, lecturers are receiving many emails um per day per week and it's very difficult to reply to each of those emails separately so the idea of it is to shift those academic based questions from emails towards a discussion board where it shifts the work from emails to a discussion board which means that if somebody asks the same question well if somebody has the same question sorry it's there and they can see the answer and they can see the discussion behind it so actually once it's implemented it would actually decrease the workload for for staff I believe
1: Okay, that's interesting. I wonder, what would you say to a student who says, actually, my problem isn't about accessibility for lecturers. Educational isolation, to me, might mean uh, isolation from from fellow students. Isn't that as big or even bigger an issue?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's something we're all feeling as students right now. Um, In terms of what I can do, um, or what I would like to do in my position if elected, would be, I think, The first thing is to use my position on those education committees to bring forward that issue and not to be silent about it, to be a very loud voice. I'm not scared to be the loudest voice in the room, you know, especially when it comes to things to do with mental health, because mental health obviously directly impacts your education. So it's about going into those meetings, speaking loudly and clearly about those and pushing for uh, recognition and in turn more funding. I think I spoke about this yesterday as well it's there was, a, there was an Omni report which was a university wide mental health report that was done I believe in 2018-2019 where over 2,000 students participated and it, it brought up really amazing statistics that showed the mental health decline within the student body but that was all done pre-pandemic and circumstances have changed now and I want to push and work with our elected VP of welfare next year if I am elected to push for an updated report on that because I think at the bare bones of it staff and um, higher-ups cannot argue with statistics when it comes to mental health and isolation is so prevalent within our student body so pushing for those two things um, I think is a massive first step towards that that issue.
1: Okay let's talk about Omni specifically then so you, you you actually put your finger on on one of the issues I was going to raise which is that you said Omni took place in 2018 to 2019 it took almost a year to, to move throughout the entirety of the process um, do you think that uh, do you think that it's really necessary to have updated statistics, really specific statistics about how students are feeling about mental health? Is it not the case that it's fairly clear? Some would say already that, student, that students are feeling educationally isolated, having a mental health uh, uh, crisis. Some people would say it's just the housing. Aren't these things fairly clear already? Do we really need a year long and uh, not inexpensive reports in order to discover those things. Indeed, certainly they're clear enough that they've appeared in your manifesto and in the manifesto of nearly every other student officer who's running. If it wasn't clear that those things were happening, they wouldn't be in there. One, do we need another year-long process of statistics? And two, you said that statistics can't be argued with. I wonder, is it not the case that you're providing evidence of the fact that actually that Omni report in 2018 and 2019 was argued with because the re- the, the necessary mitigations to try to improve the things that came up in, the, in that report never happened?
0: Mm-hmm. I think I understand that, definitely. It's not about just leaving this issue and waiting for those statistics. It's about doing both at the same time. So running this survey, which, as you said, is inexpensive it can be done although it takes a long time having that running in in the background I think is is really important because having the statistics behind behind you is never a bad thing Um, and I think creating the action as well alongside of that is you can't just have the survey as you said it it was a long survey it took a long time to come through it's more so to have those statistics behind you to increase funding because there are the facts there like we did this report at this time post-pandemic 88% 88% of students said they felt this way or, or anything like that. You know, that's, that's a fact that has been collected data from students at that time. Um, and that would be to push for increased mental health funding and things like that, while at the same time, carrying out all the other things you can do to improve isolation.
1: I suppose it just strikes me that, um, you know, Is it it a good use of time? Is it a good use of resources, do you think, Beth? You know, when you're a student officer, and it's the same in every single role, you have a certain amount of bandwidth. The Omni report was a really big undertaking in 2018, 2019, soaked up quite a lot of that saturation in terms of student attention, student officer time. Um, Would you not be better dedicating 100% of your time for demanding sort of real bread and butter change rather than trying to push through another very comprehensive, extensive and lengthy statistics report?
0: No, I understand what you're saying there, definitely, and I think the framework for the report is there already because it happened in the past, um, and it would be building on that past report. So I don't think it would be as time-consuming as it was in the past. Um, but I think you can't have one without the other. I think that doing the action is goes without question, and it will happen. Um, but having those statistics run in the background is sort of like a contingency where you've got the facts. You know, this is cannot be argued with because it's been collected. Here are X, Y, Z factors. You know, Doing both at the same time, I think, is just vital. You can't have one without the other, I think.
1: Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about tuition fees. So you talk in your manifesto about fighting against tuition fees. Um, do you think it's a good use of time as well to dedicate time and energy to fighting a national government policy when a lot of students might say you have basically no chance of changing it?
0: I think that's a massive misconception among the student body. And I've, I've, I've Touched on this a lot um, in, in different conversations I've had. I can't say yes or no to myself changing how the tuition fees are. It's not a black and white answer, and I, as one person, cannot do that. But it's about a, a creating a wider community among students, and I don't think it's a waste of time. I just think it hasn't been done to to the correct way yet. I think that students need to be inspired to come out and join the fight. It's not just a single officer or a six officer fight. It needs to be within the entire student body, within the entire national student body, and indeed a complete student union-wide movement. It can't just be one person. Um, I I think that's a misconception.
1: I know, absolutely. I suppose, Beth, you know, for as long as... Certainly, I've been at Queen's over the last three years, and for as long as I've been aware of politics more generally, I've heard something similar to that, which is students consistently saying, we want to fight against tuition fees, and we're going to make this community, and we've made this community, and we're doing X, Y, or Z. I suppose I'm just asking, if uh, it, is it the case that you are actually confident that if those factors were achieved, you would be able to get a reduction in tuition fees? Um, over such a lengthy period of time that students have been arguing against tuition fees, at least back to 2011, 2012, there's been no change to the way that tuition fees work in the UK. If anything, tuition fees have gone up. Um, I wonder, uh, what would you say to somebody who might say to you listen tuition fees is inevitable it's something it's a national government policy we can't fix that but instead we're going to dedicate our time to the small things the bread and butter issues that might really matter to a student like counselling services maybe or some mental health issues or bunch deadlines or feedback or any of this kind of stuff what would you say to a student who would come with you with that kind of argument
0: um it's a very good point definitely i think Right now, we're in a very unique position. Our government is not very stable right now. Um, And I think now more than ever, if students come together on a national scale or even just within a Queen's University scale and push at this time where the government is unstable, um, it is more likely now than ever to instigate those changes. Um, I mean, fees are now £4,530 and they're looking to increase that by 59% by September 2024. And that would put that at £7,200. So if we don't push back now, where the the government is in a position of vulnerability, now is the time as, as better time as any, you know, as good a time as any. So I don't see why we shouldn't push forward now in this coming year.
1: Uh-huh. And what about this? You hear a lot of it as well about a, a fee refund. Is that somewhere where your heads at as well?
0: Um, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a secondary issue in my personal opinion because. Getting a fee refund is all well and good, but if the fees just continue to increase, then it's not going to change anything at the base of it. So, I think the first step is to get the fees to stay down and to decrease uh, by a proportional amount, and then look at fee refunds in a in a in a sort of backtracking way.
1: Just looking at society more broadly, Beth. I mean, what 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 do you think? Your what are your overall objections to the the structure of student finance in the UK? Uh, is it not fair that a student's, uh Is obliged to pay back their tuition fees only if they earn over a certain amount of money in Northern Ireland, 19,000 in the rest of the UK, somewhere in the upwards of of, uh, over 25,000. Is that not a fair enough thing to ask students to do to contribute 9% of their income over a fairly high threshold? Uh, Why do you think that's unfair?
0: Yeah, I don't think that's what I'm saying here. I I don't know an awful lot about specifically how the repayments within Shin Finance work. And it's not something that I want to talk about off the bat without going and finding out that information first. I think what I'm saying more is it's not about the repayments. It's about the experience that we're receiving right now versus the experience that we expected to receive. This is not the university experience that students had signed up for. We did not sign up to stare at a screen. And I don't think that we should be paying more money to stare at a screen. Um, it's not a, its so much an issue as the repayments, as the sum of money that we will have to give the university as a whole. I mean... I feel like a consumer at this university, uh, I feel like my education here is a product, and that's what I'm, t- I'm talking about, and that's why I want to get the fees reduced.
1: Okay, so let me just let me just because this is a really important issue, Beth, and, I, and and I know you're very passionate about it. So let me just focus ever so slightly. And so is this about students who have been students during the pandemic uh, not paying more in the future, or is it about students who've been students during the pandemic getting a fee reduction? Uh, or, or a refund on some of their fees, or is it about a much broader issue about the entire way that, that tuition fees work in Northern Ireland?
0: I think it's a broader issue, um, and I've always thought it as, as, as a broader issue. Um, but I think we cannot fight it as a broader issue right now because the topic is focused around the pandemic because that is the situation that we are in right now. So as an overarching theme, I think I'd like to fight against tuition fees. Um, but at this time, at this at this uh, sort of period where, that we're in, coming out of the pandemic and things, it needs to be focused on students who are studying in the pandemic, getting that refund and getting that reduction and things like that.
1: Okay, let me ask two questions then on that basis, Beth. One, um, how, how would you like student finance to work nationally in Northern Ireland? That's sort of, I suppose GB is involved in that as well, and it's largely a national system how would you want student finance to work and two in terms of that fee reduction or refund for students who were students during the pandemic who pays for that is that the government or is it the university
0: um both very good questions and both things that i am not 100 on right now i think of a personal opinion queens is such a profitable institution and you know Profits this year have skyrocketed. And if you look at accommodation as well, they're increasing that fee over and above inflation. And that's just creating more profit for Queen's. So who's to say Queen's can't refund us that money? Who knows? That's something that i definitely like to look into in the future.
1: Well, I mean, in fairness, Beth, if you look at, you're right, Queen's made a profit this year, and it was a profit of 20 million. If you were to refund every student at Queen's for the, let's say, two years that they were studying at Queen's, it would cost you nearly 500 million. Yeah. You know, so queens might be profitable, but it's not that profitable.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And that's, again, something that I want to look further into and find out more information about before I speak up against it. You know what I mean?
1: OK, uh, let's uh, as we as we move towards finishing up, Beth, let's talk about two other issues that that didn't appear in your manifesto. And I wonder what your thoughts are on them and to understand why they maybe weren't in your manifesto. They're two issues that. Um, two issues that have been quite commonplace in manifestos for education officers over the last couple of years. One is bunch deadlines, and the other is student feedback. Um, Was there a reason you felt you didn't want to include those two things in there? And what would your policy be to those two issues? Because I, I know from speaking to students and in the last couple of years, those are two of the areas where students quite often are posing questions and sending emails to their education officer. So on those two things, bunch deadlines and feedback, where's your head at?
0: So um bunch of deadlines, I think that cannot be an issue that we focus on with a spotlight. I think that changes with change to the structure of student voice, change the way issues are brought forward, change to the power of the students and things like that. So tackling the issue at the very base of it, of improving student voice, improving accessibility and all that sort of all encompassing area is moving forward going to assist with bringing forward the issue of bunch of deadlines and bringing forward those issues where you know things aren't being changed because there's no communication well that comes up through the student voice and then it is then brought forward as an action plan
1: okay i, I suppose there's a final thing on that beth what would you say to somebody who would say you're abdicating responsibility of those two issues and handing it off to student voice you should be coming in with a policy for both of those two things that you enact from the top down what would you say to that
0: i think that um when or if i get elected um, and if, if I, I, I get the privilege of being in this position, um, I want to work on policies for both of those. Um, but I think I, as one person, cannot just completely change everything. So I want to work with the reps. I want to work be part of a team to instigate that change.
1: Okay, Beth, thank you very much. Just before we finish up, um, do you know what, take 30 seconds or so. Are there any issues we haven't been able to talk about that you're really passionate about? And kind of sum up for me why pe- people should vote for Beth for Education Officer.
0: Um, Yeah, a couple issues. I think two of the things that I have talked about, um, even in the candidate question timing and when people talk to me about why I want to run, is support for international students and then support for Irish language on campus. Those are two things that I I would like to bring up as well. I think that um, in terms of international students, it's about... Um, increasing their their representation on student rep committees and the way I want to do that is I want to talk to the international students that are engaged right now. Uh, I want to talk to them about why their experience has been different, why are they engaged in student voice and use that information from them to create um, a sort of broadened um, training and and sort of reaching out to all those international students and using the information given to me by those students that are Um interactive in our in our student voice. And then with Irish language as well, I think you've seen that across the board for all the candidates running this year. It's a massive topical issue this year. And it's something that it's ridiculous. I don't understand why it hasn't been implemented yet. Um, And it's something I'm going to fight for as well. Um, I think we've done a lot of work with that um, in the Irish language um, committee, with Irish language speaking committee within Queens have fought for the Irish language speaking students to be um put together within student accommodation. And that was an opt in. sort of scheme that is going to be implemented by Queen's and I think that's brilliant because it creates that community for Irish language students in Queen's Um, but also it is opt-in so it's not creating isolation where all Irish language speaking students are in one place you know what I mean so that's something that I think has been really great and I just want to let everybody know that I will be working on both those issues as well.
1: Okay you raised it Beth so I will go back with just what would you say to students particularly from a unionist background at Queen's some of whom would said that policy of uh, of having a housing scheme for Irish language students, they say is uh, it is part of of creating a cooled house for unionists at Queen's. What would you say to students who feel that way and come to you with a genuine concern on that basis? I
0: think. If you look at the policy itself, it is an opt-in policy, which means that if Irish language students want to be housed together, they have that option. It's not saying that all Irish language students will be housed together and will be isolated in that way and will create that sort of cold, cold house group. It's very much an opt-in thing. And it's very much about creating a community and not creating a cold house. That's what I think.
1: Okay, Beth, 30 seconds. Why should people vote for you?
0: I think people should vote for me because I am um, a loud voice in the room I'm going to bring up all of your issues and I'm not going to be as scared to talk about it and I'm fighting for action accountability and change but I do want to say no matter what happens just use your vote because nothing's going to change unless you use your vote to vote for the people that you that are going to represent your issues the best.
1: Okay we'll have to leave it there Beth Elder thank you very much.
0: Thank you thanks very much for having me.
1: Now, remember, you can see a full list of SU candidates as well as all of their manifestos on the QUB SU website. Voting opens on the 28th of February and closes on the 1st of March. And by voting, you're automatically in with a chance of winning 250 quid, courtesy of the SU. So even if you don't really care about the elections, you might as well try your luck. And don't forget, the scoop is here to keep you in the loop with all of your SU election needs. We have loads of election coverage coming this week, written questions for all the candidates, as well as presidential profiles. So there is plenty to keep an eye out for. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening
0: and chat soon.